your bulletins, you may notice a little change to the way that we normally have things kind of set up. Um, there were a couple handouts you received. One, as Ryan noted, was slightly larger than the others. And we realized that in our getting our graphics to our printer, we should probably clarify the size that we want those to be. But no matter whether you are young or old, with powerful eyes or dim, um, hey, we've got, we've got a handout. Here's the reason you've got one. It's not just because we want you to forget, or we don't want you to forget to come to church uh, next Sunday. It's because we think that what we're trying to do is uh, this is our this is a little bit of our step at marketing the church. We don't do that a whole lot. So whether you drive, uh, you know, five minutes to get to church or an hour to get to church, all of you seem to think it's worth it to be here. And so we thought that you might know some other people who might think it's worth it to be here. And now you have a giant handout to give them so that you can let them know that if they should come next week, We've got uh, both during the service and then after the service a, a context we're trying to create where we can tell people a little bit more about what we're doing here as a church. All of our small groups, all of our ministries, and as well the, the direction that we're going to be taking this fall from the pulpit are going to be kind of on display a little bit more deliberately. So... Pass those around uh, BW if you need more. Ashley's got more. You could join Ashley. She's going to potentially be um, passing those around the neighborhood this week as well, just to kind of let people know. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's one change. Uh, but you're, you're not going to be seeing a giant handout in your bulletin every week. What you are going to be finding, though, is a little bit more of a sermon, um, you know, insert so we're going to be using the bulletins for a little bit more what the announcements are. And this insert will be in there for some of your groups that are going to be actually going over the messages. Um, this will be a, hopefully a help to you. But even if your small group is engaged in something else or if you're not yet in a small group, uh, I hope this can be something that spurs on some conversation for you uh, as families or with your friends or even something that you can do uh, for your own kind of personal follow-up. Uh, but by way of follow-up, let's do a pop quiz. I gave you homework last week, if you remember. The question was, what is the gospel? Now, the good news is I'm not going to call that pop quiz quite yet. I'm announcing a pop quiz for some time in the future where, you know, we may need to actually be a little bit more deliberate, but I did get a couple text responses and I want to commend both Barb and Judy for sending those in. Their answers came from scripture, one from Genesis 1-2, another from 1 Corinthians 15, from Galatians 2-20, which we'll be looking at in two weeks. Uh, but the reason that we talked last week about the gospel is that Paul was not encouraging to the Galatians the way he would have been to the Thessalonians or to the Philippians or even to the Corinthians, but he was astonished. Now, just to get context by way of our, our sort of our geographic spread here, let's remember that down in Judea, that's where Paul was. That's the, uh, that's the little bits of light down there in the the right, uh, lower right, and that's where Jerusalem was. That's kind of where, if you would have thought of the heart of Christianity right around the time of Jesus, most of that was going to be centered around Jerusalem. It was where the death of Jesus took place. It was where 
Pentecost took place where those who were all gathered into Jerusalem and because everyone was gathered into Jerusalem and so many people were filled with the spirit at that one moment, Jerusalem really became in the beginning the epicenter of Christianity. But it spread through the process of the church being persecuted and driven out of that region as had been prophesied from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then was spreading to the ends of the earth. Paul was a little bit further up north from Judea into the region of Syria. And that's where Paul had uh, kind of settled himself down. The story of him going from Syria into Galatia, which is what we see as uh, what you see on the map there is below Asia or what we would think of as Turkey. That story is complicated. But Galatians was written after that story took place. After Paul had gone to different cities in this region of Galatia and had first gone to the Jews and then gone to the Gentiles in each of those cities and normally been kind of mistreated through the process, he then heard about this problem that was developing. And so he said in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's where we hear this word, and we're going to hear it a few different times. You heard it in the passage read today, that the keeping, the, 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 the behavior of, of Peter was not in keeping with the gospel. It wasn't in line with this gospel. And so that story, what we heard there in chapter 2, 11 through 14, is really the end of Paul's story where he's trying to drive home one main point. This gospel, this proclamation, this announcement, this good news that you've heard about is so good, but it's also the only kind of real gospel, which is what he says in verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul then says in verse 11, which is where our text is going to pick up, we are going to look at the long story Paul tells today and hear the story of his courage and his conviction because he is confident that what he understands to be the best news, the only good news, is in fact not something that should be distorted by others, but something that he is rigidly committed to. Now, in that story that's going to unfold before us, I think we have an example. But before we try to derive an example from it and try to ask questions of, do we have a similar level of courage and of conviction and of confidence that Paul had, we need to hear the story first. But in hearing the story, let's remember that the way Paul began this was right there in chapter 1, verse 1, where he said, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. That main point that he's trying to get at in verse 1, as he's introducing the whole letter, is the one that he then rehammers home in verse 11, where he says, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the key theme. 
That's the main point and the main reason Paul is going to tell this story of what happened to him. Now, those of you who know Paul, right, and we know him through the hearing of him, the Galatians would have known him because they met him. And at some point they would have heard his testimony where Paul was saying, I was the kind of guy who was very impressive, turned into an enemy of the church, and now I'm an advocate for the church. How did that happen? Well, we're going to have a long introduction that gets us up to chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Because 2, 11 through 14 is really interesting, isn't it? It is unusual, and it might be not surprising to you, but maybe you would be a little surprised to hear that at times in the history of our church, there have been disagreements among the leaders. There have been things we haven't always accented and agreed upon. And that's been true of folks that have led. And that's true of the folks that are currently leading. We don't always see everything the exact same way. So let me tell you about some of the uglier stories just before we get into that. Yeah. yeah. You may be wondering, why, why would you do that? I don't want to know how the sausage is made here at Trinity Church. We just want to know what the end result is. We don't need to know all the underbelly of some of the worst things. And yet, Paul is making his central point. The end of his story is one of the moments where the key apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, and the key apostle to the Jews, Peter, had it out and had it out publicly. And Paul thinks that, whoo, man, it's not as though after that was over, they just came back and Peter, Paul was like, man, I was, I was really out of line. I'm so sorry. I probably shouldn't have talked about that publicly. No, he's bragging about it. He puts it in the letter and says, it is such a significant deal. I need to tell you about this time that we two leaders of all Christendom were publicly kind of hot with each other. Or at least I was hot with Peter or as he's called Cephas, right? That's where this story is going. So if the introduction gets a little long, don't worry. It gets really juicy at the end, okay? So let's listen to how it kind of gets there because in the telling of it, Peter's basically ramping up to chapter 2, verse 11, all right? I'm going to try to make our way through this kind of quickly, but listen to and feel the weight of what Paul's saying. We've summed it up this way in your bullet and insert. It says, Paul was saved by grace and then established from a distance. He was preaching in obscurity and then tested in secret. Though pressed to conformity, he was solid under pressure, unmoved by the popular. Paul was sent to the unpopular and was even eager to go to the least of the unpopular. That's his background. That's the story he wants you to hear. So let's hear it in his words. First point is that Paul was saved by grace. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... And this is how any good telling of the gospel and of our testimony ought to be. I was, fill in the blank, I was a reprobate drunk, but 
I was the eldest in my family, first in my class, and most popular in my friend group. But I was known as a good person, and yet under the surface, I was really insecure, and I was starting to dabble in a whole mess of stuff that really nobody should be dabbling in. But... See, the good news of the gospel that we are saved by grace always involves, to quote Finding Nemo, a big but. There is this sense right there in verse 15 that if Paul had continued telling the story of how he was saved by grace, you might think that the reason God saved him was not by grace, but by all the stuff he was doing. All of his zeal, you might think that he might be saying in verses 13 and 14, I was so impressive. I was the cute little orphan Annie. Therefore, Daddy Warbucks had to adopt me. I was so impressive. I was the number one draft pick out there. I was the top free agent. Therefore, God had to come get me. But that's not the word that he uses. The conjunction is not and or so that or anything like that. It is but. However, despite all that. And then what's interesting is if you've read the book of Acts, you know that what happens next was miraculous, amazing. It, it would just be, the, the, to me, the climax of the story. But when I was on the horse and I saw the light, pow, it was amazing. Let me overwhelm you with the miraculous parts of it. That's not what Paul does. But he had set me apart before I was born. Before I was impressive and before I was an enemy. Before my internal zeal took me in seemingly two very different directions. Before all that, he had set me apart before I was born. He had called me, and here's a summary, by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. The good news for us in hearing this story is how dissimilar and similar ours are. I don't think that in getting to know any of you, I've ever heard of your testimony of how you slaughtered believers before you came to Jesus. I don't know of any story where the, the coats of those who were stoning someone were thrown at your feet and how you advanced on. But I would say that probably in all of our stories are things that you're impressed by and you'd want to accent if you were telling your past and things that you're ashamed by that you'd really want to have forgotten and, and removed from your story. But you were called, set apart before you were born, and God revealed his son to you. It's a good way for Paul to start his story, isn't it? That's really the way that we ought to start all of ours. Paul says that in the very beginning, he was saved by grace. And as verse 15, uh, or sorry, as verse 16 kind of comes and, and completes the, the narrative, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. But it's not just anyone that he's talking about. He's talking about any of the significant ones. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away 
into Arabia. So if you're thinking of Jerusalem as the epicenter, the hub, he went south first. The exact location of Arabia is a little bit tricky to kind of determine. But he's clearly moving in a very different direction. And then I returned again to Damascus. He's got two timestamps in here of significance. A third that's a little less significant. The first massive timestamp is right there in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter. And I remained for him for 15 days. So let me just get the story down with you guys for a sec. Right after it was revealed to me that this message that I've been proclaiming that has been drawing the Gentiles into the household of faith was so significant about Jesus, I immediately had to double check it with all the important people. I wanted to be like that engineer who was coming in and saying, guys, look at my math. Did I get this right? Paul's saying, no. I don't need the rubber stamp of the important. I could tell you this came far more significantly, not by the Jerusalem elite, but from Jesus himself, the one pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, did not require me immediately to consult with anybody. None of the Jerusalem apostles needed to put their rubber stamp on this. But instead, I actually went south. I, for three years, was gone. And then basically for two weeks, I popped back in to talk to Peter for a little bit. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So then he heads north. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea, again, the central hub, that are in Christ. They were only hearing it and said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So saved by grace, he was established really from a distance and then he was preaching in obscurity. Here comes the second timestamp in the midst of this. After 14 years. It's so easy to just blow through this, but let's just ask the question, what was going on in your life 17 years ago? Oh, I don't know. I'm still trying to do the math. Right? 2023, 17, 2006. I was coming to Ohio. That's what was, I didn't have big boys. I had little boys. They're cute boys. Alda tells the story of one of my cute boys dancing in front. But it wasn't here, and it wasn't in the plaza. Man, that was back in the school. 17 years ago is a long time. I don't know what you're doing in your math. But like, Wow. I wasn't planning to send my kid to Japan. What's going on? How did we get here? That's, if you just got the frame of reference, chronologically speaking, that's the time frame that Paul's kind of covered so quickly. He just blew past it. Who were his friends? How did he make a living? What was going on? Not the point. 
This frustrates me so many times when I read the Bible. Moses grew up in Egypt, slaughtered someone 40 years later. Wait, what? How do you get past 40 years later? How do you just yada, yada, yada your way through that and get to the end there? That's not fair. You can't do that. That's what he's doing. Because the way people tell story is the thing that helps you, you know, kind of accent what's most important. This is why most people are frustrated when I'm telling stories. And, and if I'm with Christine, she can be kind of like, I don't think that's where we need to be accent. I'm like, I know, it's just a cool story. Yeah, but you're diverting from the point you're trying to make in the beginning. It's a problem with we bunny trail people, which is an interesting thing that I know. <laughs> right? Paul is not given to bunny trails right here, right? I mean, did he meet someone? Did he fall in love? Does he still talk about me? I don't know. Nobody, we get nothing. 17 years, we get nothing. Darren's time in Ohio, just, just right past, because here comes the significant stuff. I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately because of those who seemed influential, the gospel. I, uh, because of a revelation, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 17 years of ministry. And so I'm announcing, by the way, I'm going to be going to seminary just because I thought I should just double check this stuff that we've been doing here at the pulpit for 17 years. That's kind of the equivalent of what, what, he, what he's doing. He's now coming to the influential after 17 years, remember he had the two-week visit like 14 years ago. Now he's back and he's saying, I, I, I did want to kind of just test this stuff out, all right? But not, not big. We didn't do it big. We did it more privately. So saved by grace, he's established from a distance. He's preaching obscurity. He comes and he's tested in secret. And here's the result of that test, verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, so that we, sorry, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, remember I told you last week, there are going to be themes that are thrown out in this book, and you're going to hear them a little bit, and then they're going to revisit them later. Right there, okay? Get used to that tune of freedom and slavery. That one is one to just remember because you're going to hear it again. But he's already setting the light and airy tunes of freedom up against the dark, harsh background of slavery. And he's saying somehow it's connected to this concept of if I would have had to take a Gentile who was with me and circumcise him in order that we could kind of have this, you know, conversation about the gospel. If the Gentile had to get circumcised, that would have been the equivalent of bringing slavery into the gospel. I'm preaching a gospel of freedom and they'd be bringing in something that would enslave once again, boom, boom, boom. So hear that theme. We're going to get back to it. But Titus is kind of a in this moment kind of situation. So Paul is clearly 
through this process, he's being pressed to conformity, but, point six, he is solid under pressure. To them, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is that classic kind of football moment, right? Your team is down by six. It is the last play in a goal line stand and the tight end makes his way across. This is just teasers for next week, right? Right? Because we'll be watching the Browns game here, by the way, just so you know. Kickoff Sunday is an intentionally named thing for our opening week, you know. But here's, here's, here's kind of the... The moment the tight end's coming across, the quarterback finds him, throws the ball, both linebackers collapse on him at the same time and just clock the guy. His helmet pops off. He lands in the end zone. And the question is what? Did he hold on to the ball? Did getting clocked like that cause him to drop it? I'm sure that was the question you were asking, right? Not, is he okay? Did he get paralyzed? None of that kind of thing. If you're a fan, you're asking, what happened to the ball? We don't care about the guy. Cart him off. But if he's holding the ball, we win. And Paul's going, I knew the one thing that mattered at that moment. It was the ball. It was the gospel. And I didn't drop it. Even in the midst of those forces landing on me, I did not drop the ball. Now, I've, I've mentioned my dog before. He is still technically and genetically a dog. He more resembles a rug, but he <laughs> does kind of function as a dog more and more often than not. And yet, there's one little component of Dawson that we've lost that I used to love tremendously, and it was the ability to play with two bones with one dog. Because when Dawson was a little more spry and a little more puppy-like, I could make a big deal about one bone. And Dawson would get moving. And he'd be like, oh my gosh, that is the bone. Oh my God, no, I got the bone. I so want the bone. I'm like, you so want the bone. He's like, I want the bone. I drop it. He's like, oh, he's got the bone. And then immediately, I can take another bone. And he'd be like, oh, I got a bone. And Tosh's like, what are you talking about over there? Man, I thought I got the bone. I got a different bone, Dawson. He's like, oh my gosh, you're right. You got a different bone. Oh, drop that bone. You want this bone? I so want the bone. And I give him that bone. He's like, yes. And you just go get the other bone again. <laughs> oh, Dawson, I got the bone. And Dawson's like, are you kidding me? Where are all the bones coming from, man? This is amazing. Dawson's not like that anymore. Dawson's kind of like, are you feeding me or not, man? I just, I got no energy for all this anymore. He was a better dog because he was a greater sermon illustration before, I got to admit. Because that's us, isn't it? Here we are as believers, we come to Jesus, we hear that we've been saved by grace, that we don't need approval from anybody else anymore, that what we have done, both the good and the bad, isn't what qualifies us for the kingdom of God, but we've been welcomed in because before we were born and did anything, he picked us. Why? Because of our works? No, but because of his grace. What a message. And we get wiggling and we're happy and we're like, I want that and I want nothing else. And then come the bones. 
Then come all the other things that could distract and become more important. And Peter's sort of going to become the voice of one of those in this story. That's the problem later on is that there's this other message that's going to come in. And Paul says, it's kind of reflected by what I told you about in verse 4, this freedom versus slavery thing. If I had had to circumcise him, then, then the, the gospel, that one bone, wouldn't be the great delight anymore. It'd become this other thing we drop and we give up for something else. And I'm telling you, no. Under pressure, we stayed solid to the one gospel because we recognize there ain't nothing else. So this distortion you've been talking about, these additions you've been talking about, these other requirements for qualifying for the grace of God that we've been discussing, those aren't the gospel. And so when the moment came for us, I didn't drop it. I wasn't distracted. I held on to the ball under pressure. I remained solid. Even if, verse 6, it meant that I was unmoved by the popular and from those who seem to be influential what they were makes no difference to me God shows no don't you love the little clarifiers he keeps putting in here the apostles yeah I mean you know the apostles I'm just saying like it's not apostles they're not really all that significant but you know the apostles he keeps throwing in these little like I don't care about them God shows no partiality here's what I want you to know though those who seemed influential added nothing to me which can feel really arrogant or it can be incredibly instructive. Because if the only reason I could tell you that this was true is because of all the people who were important to you. I, I talked to John Piper the other day. He called me up. And you're like, I don't care about John Piper. I talked to Tim Keller actually before he passed away. He was telling me, oh, I kind of like Tim Keller. If I had to throw names out there in order for you to be able to say, yeah, I hear this is coming. I, th there are times that I think, and we're going to quote a guy here in a little bit because he just said it better than me. It'd be cheating for me to use his words. But if, if this message only matters because I'm bringing the right commentators or the right preachers or the right voices in, then it feels like that diminishes from the message, doesn't it? But if I can say, do you see that this is God's word? Do you see it? Am I, am I twisting this before you? Are you hearing what we're talking about? Is this coming from the word? And you, a church who have been trained to think God's word is what matters, and Darren, you get in the way, then you get out of the way, man, because we got to hear from God. If that's where authority comes from, then isn't that a more significant message? That's, that's what Paul's saying. This thing I got from God was not added because somebody else agreed. I did go and get it tested out, and it kind of passed that test. But that influence isn't what gives this authority. And so even among the popular, they added nothing to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they, these influential folks, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, Another parenthetical point, verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, if you had to be doing a deal, this feels like Lot and Abraham dividing up the land, doesn't it? Remember that moment? 
Man, our shepherds, we're having a lot of conflict. This is back in the book of Genesis. Abram's brought his, he's been promised the whole land, right? But he brought his brother's kid along with him. And now his brother's kind of influential. He's kind of influential. And our shepherds are bickering. They can't figure out stuff. And so Abraham takes Lot and says, look, let's just survey the land. You take what you want. I'll take what I want. Lot looks and says, like, that's brown. That's green. Are you serious? You're giving me the call. We're not like flipping for it or anything. Abram's like, yeah, you take whatever you want. I goes, well, I'll take the green. I want the green valley where all the grass is. And Abram's like, well, fine. You get that. I take this. There's got to, for some people, be that kind of a moment here. Peter gets the circumcised. He gets the proper. He gets the privileged. He gets the Jews who've been entrusted with a legacy of God's communication. And Paul gets the riffraff. He gets the brown desert wasteland of people. Uh, to put it a little bit more potently, he gets us. Just so you know. <laughs> Praise God for this moment because he got us. That's the way this was divided down. But then Paul sort of doubles down on it again. And it says, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. So you take the unpopular, sure, I'll take them. And just don't forget the poor people among the unpopular. And he's like, yeah, I was, I was going for them anyway. Because this is so countercultural. This is a massively stratified kind of society. And if it's hard for us to think back historically, just think the way you think of maybe like the caste system. Have you heard of it in like India? Where there are clearly like the untouchables. Roman society had the untouchables. Why? Because Greek had the untouchables. Why? Because the Persians had the untouchables. Why? Because the Babylonians had the untouchables. Why? Because we've got untouchables. This is just what societies do. This isn't an ancient problem. We are so clearly able to read the book of James and here, if you pick favorites, you're denying the gospel, just so we're clear on this. But this is all Paul's story. Paul's story is that from being saved by grace to being sent to the Gentiles and the poorest of the Gentiles, he looks and says, this is where my confidence come from. It doesn't come from people who agreed with me. I really don't regard them as much. For your sake, I've talked to them and gotten tested by them, but I got started by God and I finished this with confidence that comes from God. Now, verse 11, Cephas comes to Antioch. And so I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned strong language. If we or an angel from God should preach to you another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. Remember the, the R.C. scroll? Take him by his celestial pants and kick him out the door. That's the burden of, of chapter one. Chapter two, Paul's saying, and it happened. He stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. I got to admit, before I, I read something from Don Carson, I would have preached one view. Here's the, the first view I would have preached as we were looking into this. The one view is that the certain men from James are equal to the circumcision party. 
So that as you read, go back to the 11 and 12 there for a second, if you don't mind, Isaac. As you read the paragraph, you see those two groups of men, and you think those are exactly the same, per the same group. The certain men who came from James are the circumcision party. But here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty. This is a massively low view of Peter. This is Peter who saw the prophecy. Peter who stood up in Acts chapter 15 and defended everything about the gospel before going to the Gentiles. Peter who helped write a letter that either comes before or after Galatians. It's kind of hard to say. Does Galatians get written before that? If so, why doesn't he mention the letter? That seems a little odd. Or if it gets written after that and he's just saying, look, here's the letter from them and here's my letter and you know, something like that. It's kind of hard to know exactly when. But still, in every other occasion, Peter is courageous. And to think that a few people come and influence him because of like peer pressure, it doesn't quite fit perhaps the burden of it. Here's a bit more sympathetic view and, and I think perhaps persuasive, and this would be the second view, it's that the certain men from James are these Christ-following Jews. They're part of the believers who were from Jerusalem. But that the circumcision group in one translation, circumcision party in, another, in this translation here, are actually the hostile, believe, the unbelieving Jews who still remain back there in Jerusalem. In other words, the circumcision party is potentially persecuting the believers that are back there. Listen to the way Don Carson kind of framed the, the potential issue then. It's as if James' message to Peter is as follows. Peter, Peter, you have to remember how prominent you are, the Peter of Pentecost. And the reports of you eating with Gentiles and Antioch filters back to Jerusalem and adds to the persecution of the circumcision group and their mentality to attack the believing Jews back here in Jerusalem. Now, Don Carson says this then. Now, I can't prove that this was what the message from James was. I just suggest that this view makes much more sense. Can you see, though, what would have been going through Peter's mind? He's afraid of what's happening to his friends back home. Maybe he can take some pressure off of his friends. Now, let's go back to 11 and 12. Just read that one more time. With that potential view in mind, think of it this way. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before these friends came from Jerusalem, from James, with a message saying, hey, you doing this, eating with the Gentiles? It's kind of damaging our reputation as believers back in Jerusalem. It's adding fuel to the fire and it's giving the circumcision party permission to attack us. So when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, not for himself, nor for the reputation of himself, but fearing the circumcision party for the potential lives of his friends. Now we are going to pause. We're going to do a bit of a bunny trail next Sunday. And we are going to talk about how we are perceived by others. We're going to dive into the topic of the fear of man. Because frankly, whether you take this view and agree with Don Carson and kind of where I'm leaning right now, or if you take what I would have said as view one and say that I, I still kind of think that the circumcision party and either of those guys are the exact same, 
honestly, our interpretation of this doesn't matter. I just think it's, it's nice to kind of come with not a straw man view of Peter and his courage, but a more sympathetic view. Peter doesn't want his friends to get killed. He sees a strategic reason to be able to pull back, not just because he's worried about how he looks, but he wants to preserve their lives. And so if we're thinking sympathetically with Peter, man, I could understand. And frankly, it adds to Paul's point, doesn't it? Even if their very lives were at danger, and even if he were fearing the circumcision party for this reason, here's still where it led, verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So if we're taking this view of Peter's trying to protect the lives of those back in Jerusalem, Paul is saying it's not worth it. What you are trying to do is more toxic than what you're trying to prevent. So when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, here's the problem. We're going to put a pause in this. We're going to stop the recording right here of the playing of Galatians. Brad's going to pick that up in two weeks. Next week, we're going to pause and ask more questions about the fear of man. But if we just pause the recording right now and we ask the question, in this long story Paul has been telling, what's he trying to get at? I think Carson says it well. Where the gospel is at stake, nothing is more important, not even apostolic unity. Paul said as much in the first chapter of his letter to the Galatians. And this is far removed from the stance that says, whatever I say is the truth, I am an apostle, and so my opinions must go unquestioned, although I want to play that card so many times. Come on now. I'm the pastor. I'm a benevolent dictator over this church. Please just do what I say. But that's not where he goes. Rather, Paul is saying that the gospel itself is so absolute that should he himself change his message, his readers should stick with the gospel and not with Paul. If Paul can relativize himself with respect to the gospel, small wonder that he can also relativize Peter. Now, I still say that the mark of unity among us as a church is one of the telltale signs that the gospel is at work. But this point is it's not the only one. And frankly, it is a message and a sign that can be counterfeited if the thing that you are united around is in itself counterfeit. And if you don't see the relevance to where we've been over the last three years in this passage right now, I don't know where you've been. Because we are a fractured, tiny church if we view it through this lens. It's the most important thing that marks the faithfulness of a church. I could answer for others in conversations that I've had and I would give you different answers, not all of which are, combative, are compatible. They are somewhat compatible. 
And I would be able to say that the folks who buy into this are all very eager to be able to persuade others that this is the one central thing that ought to be most important. How this question gets answered is worthy of more conversation, which is why we're putting pause on Galatians and we're going to talk about it more next week. But rather than it just being a conversation like this, this I think is a conversation that's worthy to be had at the small group level, at your family table, to be thinking about it with your friends. And so we've placed some questions into, into uh, your bulletin here. Last two go like this. What are categories of disagreement that you think warrant this level of correction and division? What are some current disputes within the church today that don't warrant this level of correction? And how do you make those distinctions? Second question, then as, and I'm Picturing this for a community group. As a community group, what can we do to help maintain both doctrinal purity and corporate unity at Trinity? And the way that I want to end is by asking for your prayer because this is going to be one of the topics that the elders are going away to address um, in a couple weekends. We're going to be getting away, take some time just to pray about where the Lord is taking our church what we're doing, what we're excited about, what we have been doing that just needs to be pruned. And so we'd, we'd love your prayers for us as we prepare for that. We, we may solicit some uh, feedback from you either before or afterwards, um, but we are eager for that conversation with the elders, then as it expands the community group leaders, and as you kind of feel that uh, coming from us after that, uh, this is one of the topics that's most significant. What either replaces the gospel or what comes as a necessary consequence of the gospel and how do we tell the difference between those because we never want to replace the gospel but we want to make sure that the gospel's got some teeth among us and that we can similarly tell our story no matter how long it goes with the same level of courage the same level of confidence and the same level of conviction but let me just remind you of one last thing none of us can tell our story with probably the same level of courage. All of us can probably look back and find moments of weakness, even of cowardice. And the good news is, when Peter tells his story, he's got this in the rearview mirror. But that's not the worst moment for Peter, is it? Peter had been far more cowardly than what he was demonstrating right here. And even after three times denying that he knew Jesus, he heard three times from that same Jesus, do you love me? Then go and care for others. Do you know what makes that possible? It's not Peter's track record, is it? It's the gospel. This good news that the king has come not to condemn but to save. So let's take a little time and celebrate that together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for such a long story and yet for the clarity that comes with hearing somebody else's testimony and understanding what it takes to truly follow you. Lord, I pray that you would give us similar levels of both clarity about what's most important and then courage and conviction about how we can hold that and we can love others through the process of it. Father, may the gospel bear fruit 
among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.